What a day. I use a drink. Tough day at the office? People kept coming in, and that phone just wouldn't stop. Well, we better get going if we're gonna go to that uh, 7 o'clock cold fusion. Yeah, well, count me out. I'm swimming in it. Old man Leland is busting my hump over these reports. <laughs> if I don't get them done by 9, I'm toast. Oh, and uh, listen, uh, could you keep it down to a low roar? Some of us have to work in the morning. <laughs> My guest today is Adam Ozemek. He's an economist at Moody's Analytics, where he covers labor markets and other aspects of the U.S. economy, and he blogs at Forbes under the name Modeled Behavior. He joins me today to talk about unemployment, wage growth, and all things economic policy. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You know, over the last couple of years, I think both in the blog and certainly uh, on, on Twitter, you know, you've made fun or you've critiqued some analysts who have been saying for years we are at full employment, and now it looks like those critiques are vindicated because it looks like we have not been at full employment for the last few years. Unemployment rate keeps falling sort of month after month, uh, and now with the, but with the rate now below 4%, have we reached full employment, however you choose to define that? I, I don't think so, and I think that um, you know for, for folks who have been wrong year after year about this and have been too pessimistic about the labor market, um, you know, I see some updating. I see people who say, "Okay, clearly we we were we were wrong and we weren't at full employment, but now we are." But I don't really see many who are saying, "Okay, we were wrong about full employment, and now we need to you know take a broader rethink about how we think about the labor markets and sort of look forward and and question it going forward." Basically, it's you know the call that we're at full employment just keeps getting pushed back month after month after month, and so. Um, I think that's where my sort of um, my, my criticisms of, of, of those commentators comes in in that position is like, you know, I think the, the time it's time to take a step back and, and rethink, you know, what full employment is and not just move the, the month, the, the calendar month of full employment forward every month when when it doesn't show up. So is, 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 was the, the, are those claims have those claims been primarily uh, again, based on the unemployment rate, because in the past, you know, this is I, on a, I guess on a historic basis, this is a pre, it's a pretty low unemployment rate. So had they just said, look at the unemployment rate, you know, is it was in the fives, it was in the fours, now it's you know it's been below four. That that traditionally has been a a, a tight labor market. Is that is that basically was that the source of those claims? I think it was too much focus on the unemployment rate. And then also uh, skepticism about how far the unemployment rate would fall. So it's really, it's really two directions at once. You know, back in 2014, uh, I and uh, others, you know, Danny Blanche Flower, um, Ernie Tedeschi, there, you know, I wasn't alone. There are a lot of people saying, you know, the the unemployment rate is too narrow of a measure. There's slack outside that that matters. And so that's one source of error, error, focusing too much on the unemployment rate. The other error is just underestimating how far the unemployment rate would fall. So it was really, you know, both of those things at once. So so what so what have you been looking at that has brought you to a different uh, conclusion or a different view than some of those other folks? 
the real essence of the problem is that the line between being unemployed and out of the labor force and not having a job, like who is it that we count as relevant for the for labor market slack? And you can kind of think of it as like a distribution. And on, on one end, you have like super highly employed, someone who has a job and never going to lose their job. Um, or if they do, they'll be unemployed for like a, a week. And on the very far other end, you have someone who, you know, no amount of tight labor market is going to bring them back. Um, that would be someone who is in a coma, right? So right. those are like the full spectrum of labor market attachment. And traditionally, we draw the line of unemployment at the unemployment unemployment rate. And we say, okay, people who are unemployed are who count as relevant labor market slack. And this means they're actively searching for work. Um, they've looked within the last four weeks. So that's the, and beyond that, you have people who are in the labor force. And that means they've searched for work in the last year, but they're not searching right now. And they say that they want a job. And even beyond that, uh, not quite to the coma level, but still farther out of the labor force, you have people who say they don't want a job right now. And so what we're learning is not only is are the unemployed too narrow, but you're getting a lot more people coming from in the labor force who are getting jobs now, suggesting that they're relevant to labor market slack. And you're even getting people who said they don't want a job. So the share of prime age people who don't want a job is going down. So really, you know, you can't even you, you can't even limit yourself to people who say they want a job. You have to look broader than that. So, so it's sort of reaching deeper into these sorts of labor pools than what people uh, thought was likely. Exactly. And so it becomes really hard to say, all right, where do we draw a line? What what are the qualifications that we ask? What are the things that we ask of someone to be counted? And, you know, the conclusion I take away from this is is a lot of the statuses, a lot of the labor market statuses, whether it's disabled or not wanting a job, those are, you know, they're endogenous to um, the business cycle to some extent. And so you can't look at that that status and conclude that someone isn't relevant. So I, I think a very simple measure is relevant. Um, I, I look at the share of people in their prime working age years, that's 25 to 54, the share of them that have a job. It's that simple. You don't worry about why someone doesn't have a job. You just say that within this age band, you know, there is a, there's a level that's full employment. And for whatever reason, if people aren't at that employment level, that's, that's slack. And, and, if I, and if I would look at that statistic right now, what does it tell me? So what it's telling you is um, it's it's telling you that we continue to improve. So this is this is what's really important. We continue to improve. It goes up month after month. It hasn't plateaued. Um, and it's not quite back to 2007 levels. We're maybe a year from arriving at pre-recession levels. And we've got even farther than that. Um, we've got like, you know, so we got like maybe half, three quarters of a percentage point until we're back to 2000 pre-recession pre levels. But if you go back even further to you know the late 90s, when we had a really tight labor market, we're still you know, two and a half percentage points away from there. So if you know, it's not 100% clear which of these is the right benchmark. Right, I mean, is there a reason that we should not, or to use a compelling reason to at least raise a doubt as why we should compare you know today's economy and these and these levels to what they were in the 1990s that something has changed so that's not a good comparison so one thing i think that matters is that nominal wage growth from 1994 through most current uh, quarter is really strongly related to this measure um 
the, the levels of this measure. Right. And there's not any sense in that relationship. It's a very strong linear relationship. There's not any sense in that relationship that um, full employment will come sooner. You're not drifting off the line. So basically, if we were going to hit full employment sooner than um, the the earlier equilibrium we saw, you'd be drifting off this line. The relationship between wage growth and employment, but the employment rate would have broken down. Now, it's possible that the downward shift in productivity means that wage growth, a lower level of wage growth is associated with unemployment, with a uh, full employment. But to still be on this perfectly linear line means that, yes, the, un the um, full employment equilibrium has fallen, but that's been offset perfectly by a decline in the full employment wages, such that this perfect, perfectly linear relationship still exists. And that sounds like too much of a coincidence to me. So, right. well, it, it sort of sort of end up backing into uh, a different uh, a different question. So the way the wage growth issue. So is what you're saying is that when we see when we see the wage growth, people keep you know, wondering when it's going to sort of really take off. You know, it's depending on the measure of wages that you look at. It seems to be over the past year, you know, just under 3% and people have been waiting for it to be over 3% or close to 4%, which they, if that happened, then they'd say, yeah, well, I guess we do have a, uh, a, a tight labor market. But, the, but again, so as what you're saying is that the kind of wage growth we've seen so far is what you should, ex should expect given how tight the labor market actually is. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at the employment cost index, which is the best measure of wage growth, um, and it's been a very consistent measure of wage growth, it really tells a there is a very coherent parsimonious story. If you focus on the employment cost index, the prime age employment rate, job growth and inflation, all of those things together tell a very coherent, simple story of ongoing labor slack. and. It, wages are right where you'd expect them to be, and um, you know, given all those other things. If, if we if, if we had, and I think maybe you mentioned productivity growth. If, if we had higher productivity growth, which has been, uh, at least as officially measured, very very low uh, during this uh, during this expansion, and that sort of downshift happened uh, before the financial crisis. If 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 we had stronger productivity growth, would we be having higher wage growth? And is that an, also an explanation? So. Productivity growth definitely matters in the long run. Um, and so I'm kind of an optimist in the short run right now because I think that there's room for improvement in the labor market. But um, in the long run, you know, that low productivity growth is going, to, is going to be binding. So either productivity growth is going to pick up because there's some cyclicality to it, or it's gonna it's gonna be um, you know sort of a limit on how fast wage growth can go. But in the near term, I, I'm not sure it's entirely relevant because when you're talking about bargaining between firms and and employees, and uh, that bargaining being affected by cyclicality, um, I don't think that we're I don't think that, I think that there's room for wages to go up without running into that binding productivity growth problem. Right. Because you've had this slack for so long. Should we be raising interest rates right now? If this is if this is a market with still some slack, and you know ways to go before we hit some of these you know some of these constraints, uh, and that, I mean that's always you know that's like the perpetual question: Is the Fed you know is the Fed sort of jumping the gun? Should kind of let the economy run a bit more? What do you think? Um, I, w I wouldn't. I mean, I w probably wouldn't have rates at zero right now. I wouldn't still be at the zero lower bound, but I would be raising rates slower than the Fed is. And I, I think that, 
you know, by their own um, stated preferences, they would be raising rates slower. What I mean by that is back in in 2015, uh, December 2015, when they started raising rates, they believed, if you look at their projections, they believed that the unemployment rate was at um, equilibrium. So they basically thought by the unemployment rate gap, there was no slack left in the labor market. Right. And if you rewind in time, or if you fast forward in time now and look back at that, using the Fed's own projections, they now recognize actually we were pretty far from full employment at that time. So either the Fed raised rates too soon and they made a mistake about their unemployment rate projections, or they raised rates at the right time and they were wrong about how far unemployment should be when they start raising rates. Like they're just, there has to be an error in there somewhere. And I think the error is that, you know, they underestimated labor market slack. They overestimated how high the neutral rate was. And so they must have made an error. And I, I, I see a lot of hesitance among economists to make this criticism. And I think it's, I think it's partly due because the Fed did a really good job overall in the recession. You know, they, they had a really tough tough job to prevent mm-hmm. the Great Depression, and they did a good job in general. And this is this is not the story of the slow recovery, but it is a story that they, they started too soon and they raised too fast. I mean, you t- I mean you're, you're telling a rather straightforward story um, about the labor market. It's, you know, that there was just a lot more uh, slack out there. We had, you know, maybe we had a, we had a we had a really bad recession, and we've had this, you know, a very long recovery, and slowly we're sort of eating up all that non-work. People are bringing people into the uh, labor market, and at some point, if you're correct, we I mean we should have higher. You know, you would guess wage growth next year will be better than this year, uh, if I'm interpreting what you're saying directly. But there are a lot of other explanations floating around out there. Uh, that would say no, the, no, something else has gone wrong with the economy. That's why. That's why we're not seeing higher wages. There are a few theories. Whether it's the decline of the unions, uh, there's other ideas. What are some of the other theories out there that you've heard? So one of the theories. Um, let's start with the ones that have been, uh, um, you know, absolutely debunked by the data, uh, because there was a time when these theories were put out there and we argued about them and. Um, you know, my, my position is always, okay, well, let's see what happens. And we saw what happened. They were debunked. One was the, the pent-up uh, wage cuts theory. Do you remember this one? Yeah, yeah. So um, San Francisco Fed came out with this theory that, you know, the real problem with wage growth is that employers wanted to cut wait, wages faster than they could over the recession. And um, basically right now, the reason they aren't raising wages is because they're like they're they're making up for those past wage cuts. So it's like, all right, well, I wanted to cut your wage five percent a few years ago. Now the labor market is better, so I give you a raise. But first, I got to get that five percent back. So right. this is a story, and, and the conclusion from it was that labor markets were much tighter than wage growth seemed, and that when wages did pick up, once you used up all those wage cuts, they're going to like rapidly accelerate. There's just going to be this really quick pickup in wage growth. And the Fed was going to get behind the curve, and you know this had this is influential, even though you know um, from my perspective at the time the evidence was you know almost not. It was just really a conjecture, a story. And I admit it's it has uh, some compelling you know theory to it. But uh, what we've seen is that wage growth has accelerated steady and linearly. There there was no 
point when you crossed the threshold when pent-up wage growth was used up and then boom they skyrocketed wage growth has proceeded extraordinarily linearly and so that's one theory that's kind of been cast by the wayside again uh, again this is sort of a forever theory but that you know it's the problem is that you know the economy has changed you know too much money is going uh, to capital workers have no voice and that's what we're really see- we're, what we're seeing play out is sort of a a, a shift in the economy uh, that is hurting workers and helping you know helping corporations bosses owners of capital yeah that's one theory and there's two kinds of ways I would divide that one is there's the part of it that's true in that um, when you have a lot of cyclical slack, that gives employers bargaining power. And so some of the weak wage growth is just there's more workers than there are jobs. And so wages stay low. And so that is part of the story. But that's a cyclical story. That's not a structural story. Um, and the other part of it is the part that's like, well, and it's 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 never going to get better because these are permanent changes um, for you know the reasons you cite, like unions or inequality. And I would just say that we're we are seeing extremely linear improvement in nominal wage growth. It just gets better every single quarter and it just marches upward in pretty much a straight line. And my question is, are these structural factors coincidentally declining in a very straight line as cyclical slack works its way out of the economy? Or are the structural factors not binding yet? As you know, as wages sort of improve, and again, we expect them to prove further are these just the average numbers or is or, or is all this yeah wages are up but it's all going to you know the top whatever percent you prefer one percent five percent ten percent is this is this sort of balanced wage growth that you, we would like expect to see or like to see in an economy that's you know running properly so that it's definitely true that the lowest skilled workers are farthest behind that their employment rates have farther to recover than you know the more skilled workers if you have a you know, a, a, a graduate degree, your unemployment rate's really low. If you have um, a high school dropout, your unemployment rate's still pretty high. But um, progress is happening for everyone, and wage growth has improved at the top and the bottom of the distribution. Um, Jason Furman had some really uh, nice research demonstrating that, that it, you know, the improvement has been broad-based. It's not, we're not all just sitting here still in a recession while the 1% does better. Right. Well, I mean, but that's, that's sort of what you hear. You hear that there is that there is no real wage growth. And I think I suppose one reason is people are sort of unfamiliar with those numbers and they have an inequality story and they're going to kind of stick to it. But they'll all say, well, fine, fine. You know, wages are up, but all those gains have been taken away by higher inflation. Uh, to what extent is that an accurate, a, a true argument? Uh, if you use the right inflation measure, there is some real wage growth going on. But you also have to keep in mind that inflation is, you know, it moves up and down for a lot of reasons uh, not related to just labor market slack. And so it's always tricky. You know, if you look at nominal wage growth, it's extremely linear and improves like hand in hand with the labor market. If you look at real wage growth, it's like up and down, you know, because of the volatility and inflation. And so there's a lot of stuff going on there that's not related to not related to underlying labor market conditions. But, you know, faster nominal wage growth is going to translate into stronger real wage growth. But, you know, real wage growth is more useful to look at in the longer run, because in the short run, you have this volatility and inflation, and it's not a very good gauge of of where we are cyclically. Well, but, and, and what I hear about the, and, uh, the longer run is that wages have been flat 
for a very, very long time. I mean, some people say since the 90s, some people go uh, further back that there's been no real wage growth in, uh, in this country and that workers are no better off than they were decades uh, ago. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a, um, a labor market dove at this point. And so there's a lot of people who want to say, well, if you adjust for age, if you adjust for this, if you adjust for that, then we're at full employment. And I'm saying, no, you don't need those adjustments. But then when we turn to the structural economy, um, you know, there you have the better case for making those kinds of adjustments and changes in the population over time, changes in demographics and, you know, looking carefully at the right inflation measure. And, you know, my take on it is if you use the right inflation measure, if you use the right measure of wages, um, you have had progress in wage growth, and wages are not back. I mean, wages are not stuck back at 1973 levels. And people, off, the problem there is people look at household income, which there's a lot of compositional changes over time to households. So if you you focus on the right wage growth measure, use the right deflators, what you see is um, wage growth that's disappointing. So it's not that there's nothing to complain. Disappointing about. compared to what it was what in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, in past decades, it's way it's slower than it's slower than it should be. It's slower than uh, you might think, given the the overall progress in the economy, and it's also slower for people um, lower on the on the on the skill scale. Right. Well, I mean, to me, that's sort of the more interesting argument. I'm sort of less interested in it than if it how we're doing versus you know during you know these two immediate post-war decades versus how are we doing versus how productive workers are and that and this and oftentimes i'll see this chart as i'm sure you have as well it shows that there there's now sort of a greater gap between um wage growth or even compensation growth and productivity i mean workers are supposed to be rewarded if they get more productive they're supposed to make more money but it seems like they're not being compensated for their their higher productivity in a way that they used to be so the the, the graph that you see too much the one where one line, the wage growth line flattens out and productivity takes off is, is a misleading graph. You're using different deflators there. Um, if, if you look at the right, you know, apples to apples comparison, it's not nearly as bad as that looks. But the, at the end of the day, the, the labor share of income, the share of output going to workers, I do think has fallen. And I do think that there is um, that there is a lack of wage growth has not quite kept up with overall progress. And I think it's, it, it is, you can see it in that, you know, the remaining wedge between productivity and wages, you can see it in the declining labor share. Um, it, but I, I'm not sure that that's something that is- um, Is that fixable by policy? Yeah, so I, I, there's two ways I think it's fixable by policy. One is by doing a little bit more on the spending side of things. And the other is, you know, it really remains to be seen how much of the cyclical recovery is going to improve that labor share there's a longer run story you can tell about cyclical slack that starts way before the great recession and that's to say that you know for decades the fed has been trying to bring inflationary pressures out of the economy that came up in the 70s and to do that they've had to keep you know rates above sort of a um, neutral level and there's been this sort of squeeze and you also have had other shocks like you know the globalization which has created in pockets of the country um, cyclical output or cyclical gaps that are just sort of persistent. They just have never had a chance to heal. And so you can look back at that and say like, all right, well, when, when were we really at full employment? And you know, this, the pessimistic take is that it was only for a brief period in the late 1990s. And if we get back there, then 
you know, if the Fed lets us get back there, if we don't have any uh, shocks and, and the recovery keeps going, how many of these structural things are going to be healed? And how much will we, in retrospect, look back at the last few decades as being one where there were these shocks that were some combination of demand shocks and supply shocks that were holding things below potential? What, what did you mean when you said uh, among things policymakers do uh, on the spending side? So there, I talk a lot about the earned income tax credit, I think. Right. Oh, okay. The, the, the best policy. I, I know you guys at AEI are big fans of that as well. I think that is a huge help. Um, it increases uh, employment rates among low skilled workers, puts more money in their pocket. It's like, it's the closest thing to a win-win. And I worry that, um, I, I worry that that's not what's going to happen and that uh, Republicans are using their political capital for tax cuts and uh, Democrats aren't going to focus on that as much as they should um, at the expense of other policies. Also, one other, one criticism of this low unemployment rate is that it's, it's, uh, it's misleading because there's been a growth in sort of the two-job economy, people are working uh, multiple jobs, and maybe it's the rise of the gig economy where they have a full-time job, but then they're, I guess, Ubering or something on the weekends or as they go to and from work. So that also gives a misleading – that gives a misleading um, indication of how, uh, how, how good the job market is. This is another one of those stories where the story is so compelling to people that it's like they don't. In a way, it kind of feels it feels right in a way. Yeah, it does. Like you know, I use Uber. Like that feels like a really big thing. You know, that feels like a big change. Um, And um, you know, I buy stuff on eBay, and it's it's one of those things that feels too good that people make up their minds before they look at the data, and. I, that you know that's been misleading dozens of times throughout this recovery to to make that mistake. And if you look at the data, multiple job holding is you know the percent of people who have multiple jobs is not elevated historically. There's there's nothing there. You know, small business ownership is not there. Um, the the BLS released uh, a, a, a new special survey edition that looked at this. There's nothing there. And you know, and, and, the, and you feel that we ha- that government statistics have a relatively good handle on this situation that they're not missing something. Yeah. And I mean, even if, you know, there's a chance that the wording of the question, the way the BLS asks it is missing some people, you know, you can't dismiss that possibility, but what, what it means is we're missing, we're going to be talking about a small number here. This isn't something that's affecting most workers or even like, you know, double digit number of workers. This is like, this is a small, small corner of the labor market phenomenon that's interesting in its own right, has the potential to grow, but it's just not a major explanation for what's happening in the economy today. All right. Um, you know, speaking of uh, stories, here's a story I would very much like to believe because uh, we mentioned productivity and that's a, you know, that's over the long run that determines, you know, our, our living standards. And, you know, uh, for a high productivity economy, you know, it's more opportunity, uh, you know, incomes will be higher than if we have a, a low uh, productivity economy. And we've had a low productivity economy for a number of years now. But I would like to believe that all this stuff happening in Silicon Valley, artificial intelligence, robotics, that we're about to enter a new age of high productivity, like we saw in the 90s, but perhaps it'll be a kind of a longer term thing. We'll have this structural shift to a much higher productivity. I, I would like to believe that story if, when I read, uh, you know, when I read the, the, you know, the technology sections of the uh, uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. It feels like that's coming. When I talk to people from Silicon Valley, uh, that, reinforce, <laughs> that reinforces my bias, uh, my super opt to believe that is true. 
do you do you think that's happening? Do you think that we're on the verge of a of a kind of a, a an era of high productivity and all the wonderful things that will produce? I mean, it feels it feels compelling. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, it's easy to look out there and see examples of disruptive technology. Uh, that you know, when it becomes fully functioning and capable, it's definitely going to make a big difference. I think self-driving cars is like probably at the top of the list in terms of like you know certainty that it will arrive. It just depends on when. But uh, there's been some there's there's an exaggerated story there in terms of like you know I read Eric Brynolfsson and um, and and McAfee's book, uh, the the machine age. The the two of them they have two books about the machine age and. You know, they, they, have been on, they have been on this podcast as well, giving me that uh, the story I, I really like to hear. And, and, you know, they told us back in I think the first book came out in 2010. So, you know, probably they were writing it in 2009 and they were looking at stuff that happened in 2007 and 2008. And they're like, we're on the back half of the chessboard, so to speak, meaning that we're going to uh, listeners can go back and listen to that podcast for the full story. But the basic claim is that we're about to enter an era of exponential growth and like. You know, I understand the idea that some of the growth may be missing in productivity statistics, but you cannot hide exponential growth with measurement error. So the improvements look relatively linear to me. And so if you take those Silicon Valley technologies and you bring them all here tomorrow, um, sure, that sounds like massive boost to productivity growth. But if you sprinkle them out over the next two decades, you know, is that a massive boost in productivity growth? Or is it just like, you know, an extra 25 basis points a year? Is it 50 basis points a year? It's it's really uncertain, but I don't think it's a home run case that 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 we're about to enter this era of fast growth. Because, I mean, it seems like based on the stories they told, we should be there already. Right. I mean, that's actually an interesting point about uh, if, if we that you should be able you almost don't even have to look at the statistics that if, if it really on the back half of the chessboard and we're experiencing all this it's almost like you you would know it i'm reminded of when i uh, i love sometimes um tweeting the the chart looking at the average you know uh, the average per capita income to the best we can measure it in 1800 versus today and on that line showing the you know, unbelievable uh increase in how people are doing today versus 200 years ago and people are saying well you're you know, uh, they don't like some people just don't want to believe that on some mm-hmm. base level for some reason. And they'll be like, well, are you counting this? Are you counting that? I'm like, we're not talking like we're five percent better. Right. We're talking many, many, many multiples. And and it's not because we're, we, we've just missed. We're not counting this one thing or over counting this other thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, just a tremendous improvement. And it, I mean, doesn't that like, you know, feel, feel I mean, who would want to live in 1800? Uh, we're almost out of time here. But how concerned are you that we've talked about some of the good things going on in the economy, that these uh, trade conflicts will be a substantial sort of depressant on the economy going forward? Markets am- don't seem markets don't seem to care. Yeah, that's the good news. And I wonder how I wonder how many percentage points the trade war is holding down the S&P 500 right now. And um, this is not my forecast. I take my forecasting very seriously. So I wouldn't make such a uh, such a bold forecast like this. But I will say I'm interested in the possibility that um, before these midterm elections, these trade wars uh, miraculously wrap themselves up with a nice clean bow. And um, the administration declares that we got everything we wanted. And then you read the details and it's like, well, they didn't get anything they wanted. This is like they just, you know, they just called it quits and said we won. And the S&P 500 goes up 10 percent. And it's great for 
the election. That's my, I'll call it my conspiracy theory, not my <laughs> forecast. Well, um, do you, do you feel that, uh, um, uh, sorry, with you know with the tax cuts and there's you know people can start debating the impact of the tax cuts on the economy. The common uh, sort of Wall Street forecast, and it's not just Wall Street. I guess it's probably some like the CBO, is that the tax cuts and some higher spending by government have sort of juiced the economy, and for a couple of years. And then what we'll see is that in 2020 that we'll see a fade, and we'll be right back to kind of a, a the, the sort of two percent ish uh, economy that we saw. Um, you know, for most of this expansion. So where, where are you? Do you think that these tax cuts or something else maybe have caused the economy to change? We have, we're going to, we're on a higher sort of semi-permanent growth path, or is it going to be sort of the big fade and back to where we were um, in a couple of years? I think, I think the best guess is that it's going to fade, but I think that there's an upside risk, as we like to say in the forecasting business, um, to some permanent boost, and I would, but it's not it's not where most of the money went. I think that cutting corporate taxes, probably no, not as far as they did, but cutting corporate taxes somewhat has a chance to boost output. Um, uh, you know, in a permanent sense, because you know, I think you know, at, there's sort of um, there's some unmodeled outcomes there that matter in terms of, you know, will this encourage businesses to scale up faster, to choose corporations as a uh, organization form? You know, the corporations as a share of businesses have gone down over time. And, you know, I, I, a suspicion that I have is that, and this is not, a, there's not a lot of empirical basis for it. So this is why I call it an upside risk is that um, it become more regulatory burdensome and higher taxes on becoming a corporation. So that encourages, you know, partnerships and LLCs and stuff. And maybe these tax cuts will give us a nice boost to the companies becoming corporations and there will be some growth factors there. But that's like sort of a small piece of what we spent the money on. And, and I don't think there's going to be a permanent boost from income tax cuts. I don't think there's going to be a permanent boost from uh, increasing the taxes on pass-throughs. So right. it, most, mostly, I think this is just going to be a, a temporary little bit of sugar for the economy and not going to deliver outcomes, which is unfortunate because it's a lot of money to spend on that. You know, I, I, I keep thinking I, when I do these podcasts now, I should always ask a question. What is something that you think might be true? You have your suspicions it's true. You cannot prove it, but you think it's true. I think that would be very interesting. I think there's a lot of things like that that people are sort of hesitant to be, make a very strong argument, but they they're just, they think it might be true. Um, we're, uh, we're almost out of time. What What is sort of your favorite policy idea that is sort of isn't a non-obvious one? You, you mentioned the earned income tax credit. Every economist I'll have on here always say, you know, immigration or, or high school immigration. Uh, do you have an idea that maybe isn't an obvious one that that's sort of your pet idea that uh, that you have an opportunity right here to put out there? Yeah, let me, I'll go a little more radical than that, because you do hear, you know, a, I mean, if you ask me to rank them, you know, immigration would obviously be at the top of my list, along with earned income tax credit. But you've heard that from all your guests. So let me go with something a little bit more unusual and radical. And I think that we need to consider a, um, a federal property tax. I think we need to consider the uh, the idea of taxing, especially luxury homes. Um, you know, these million dollar mansions, it's a, it's a mix of uh, economic rents, which is great to tax, land, which is great to tax because right. it's immobile, you can't go it anywhere, um, gains from exclusionary zoning and luxury consumption goods. Like those are all great things to tax. And, you know, it's 
there's plenty of ideas for how to spend money. Um, there's not as many good novel ideas for where to get it. And I think this is one that could lean against wealth inequality, could lean a little bit against exclusionary zoning, and would be highly efficient. And so I think that merits some and, so, and sort of leapfrogs over the difficulties. You mentioned the zoning issue, which we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, it's you know very difficult to make headway against that issue on a local basis. So this would sort of preempt all those sort of local debates and, and sort of make it and sort of federalize the issue. Exactly. You know, if you if you want to close your community to um, new development and, you know, drive up house prices to astronomical levels, you know, what can we do about that uh, except tax it? All right. And that's, the, that's that's super interesting. And now I'm regretting not making this into a full 45 minute podcast. <laughs> I have a feeling you have a couple other interesting ideas, but we do have to go. Adam, uh, fantastic. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. We'll have to have back again. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me.